This week, Puerto Rico Senate President sues Prepper hours after handover to Luma Energy. DOJ wades into fight between state of Florida and CDC. And study says Storm Uri Power costs 75% lower absent PUC pricing order. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the Week in Review. Later on, we'll discuss Judge Sanchi's ruling in the Eagle Hospitality cases that Singaporean debtor entities are eligible for Chapter 11 protection, the state of play in the Hertz cases, and a recent reorg analysis modeling a hypothetical Chapter 11 filing by opioid manufacturer Endo International. This week, reorg Sean Daly will be speaking with Jeff Cohen, the head of Lowenstein Sandler's restructuring department. Jeff and Sean reflect on Jeff's career in restructuring and take a close look at retail bankruptcies and Jeff's work on the Century 21 bankruptcy cases. It's Friday, June 4th. On Monday, Luma Energy took the reins of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authorities, or PREPA's, transmission and distribution system under a 15-year operation and maintenance agreement, or OMA, to run the grid. The OMA was signed in June 2020. However, legal and legislative wrangling around the transaction and potential future public-private partnerships at PREPA showed no signs of slowing down when, just hours after the grid handover, Senate President José Luis Dalmau filed suit in Commonwealth Court seeking to nullify the OMA. PREPA and AFAF responded Wednesday with a notice of removal seeking to transfer the case to the Title III Court. Luma also took legal action in the Commonwealth Court on Wednesday, alleging that UTIR, the main union at PREPA, is blocking access to PREPA facilities, including the Palo Seco power plant outside San Juan and installations in the municipalities of Caguas and Utuada. The suit, which names UTIR, UTIR President Angel Figueroa Jaramillo, and the Association of PREPA Retirees, seeks a temporary restraining order, injunctive relief, and summary judgment. An initial hearing was set for today by the San Juan Court of First Instance. The PROMESA Oversight Board, meanwhile, moved Thursday to enjoin the Commonwealth government from enacting proposed legislation, Senate Bill 450, that would lock Luma Energy and future public-private partnership companies into existing collective bargaining agreements as successor employers. In the ongoing litigation by the state of Florida against the CDC's Conditional Sailing Order, or CSO, where Florida has filed a preliminary injunction seeking to bar the CDC from enforcing its requirements for a return to cruising from U.S. ports, This week, the DOJ asked the district court for leave to file a supplemental brief and declaration opposing Flores' request for a preliminary injunction. According to the motion, because, quote, cruising is set to resume as planned, Florida cannot establish an irreparable injury that would occur in the absence of an injunction. Royal Caribbean International Norwegian Cruise Lines have announced that they would resume certain cruises in June and July, and according to the DOJ, as of June 1st, the CDC has approved port agreements covering 22 vessels at five ports of call and is reviewing agreements for six additional vessels. In a footnote, the brief notes reported disagreement between Florida and the cruise industry over vaccine passports. The GOJ also argues that the CSO has already been ratified by the passage of the Alaska Tourism Restoration Act, which allows cruises to restart certain cruise ship operations in Alaska and was signed into law on May 24th. Florida has already responded to the DOJ's motion and has accused the CDC of creating a moving target by constantly changing its return to cruising guidelines during the litigation. Florida argues that the CDC, quote, did almost nothing to move towards reopening cruising until Florida filed suit, and thus the court should be skeptical about the CDC's intentions in the case. In the wake of Winter Storm Uri, Chairman Peter Lake and Commissioner Will McAdams of the Public Utility Commission of Texas convened a public workshop last Thursday to discuss possible action by the commission and ERCOT, 
including the use of securitization financing to recover the extraordinary costs and expenses incurred due to the storm over a 30-year period. Lake said that securitization would be a price shock protection mechanism for consumers, and the sooner it is implemented, the better. Lake also highlighted that none of the securitization legislation is simple or straightforward, and is quote-unquote, not something that can happen overnight. McAdams said that while he did not know exactly when the full effect of the securitization bills would be felt, commission action would become more apparent when the bills are signed and market participants actively start to adjust. Also on Wednesday, Vistra Corp filed a letter with the PUCT attaching a study by London Economics International, commissioned by Vistra to determine what market clearing prices would have been from February 15th through February 19th in the absence of the PUCT's February 15th and February 16th pricing orders. The PUCT pricing orders, which were administered by ERCOT from February 15th at 11.15 p.m. Eastern to February 19th at 10 a.m. Eastern, mandated that all power transactions within the ERCOT region clear at $9,000 per megawatt hour. The London Economics Report concluded that prices during this period, absent the PUCT orders, would have been $2,404 per megawatt hour on average, which according to the report, is $6,578 per megawatt hour lower than the real-time settlement point prices, or RTSPPs, established by ERCOT. In addition to pricing estimates, the report concludes that ERCOT's adjustments to energy prices can be reversed, and states that, quote, the actions taken by the ERCOT system operator to implement the PUCT orders were straightforward, end quote, and that it was, quote, a straightforward matter for LEI to unwind the adjustments and revert back to the real-time energy prices pursuant to the protocols, end quote. London Economics notes that it used publicly available data from ERCOT to reverse ERCOT's adjustments in its study. This week, Reorg subscribers were treated to Supreme content, where Reorg published an Excel model applying the constructs of Malincroft's Chapter 11 plan to a hypothetical Chapter 11 filing by Endo International. In April, a Tennessee state trial court entered a default judgment of liability on governmental opioid-related claims against Endo Health Solutions and Endo Pharmaceuticals. Endo has characterized the judgment as a sanction for alleged discovery improprieties and says that the issue of damages will be assessed at, at a trial, which is scheduled to begin on July 26. In addition to the Tennessee trial, a California state bench trial is ongoing and a New York state court jury trial is scheduled to begin on June 22nd. Reorg's coverage considers the difficulty of attempting a surgical Chapter 11 filing of Endo's opioid business, given that plaintiffs have asserted direct claims against both opioid and non-opioid Endo entities. Reorg's analysis also considers whether a theoretical Endo Chapter 11 could take a similar approach as Malincroft's proposed plan, allowing it to use internally generated cash flows to address a potential cash-structured settlement with opioid plaintiffs. If you're interested in accessing Reorg's in-depth coverage of Endo and more broadly opioid litigation, please reach out to a Reorg sales representative. In advance of their confirmation hearing scheduled for next week, the Hertz debtors have received a number of objections to the company's third amended plan of reorganization, which provides a recovery to existing equity and purports to leave various other classes unimpaired. The most notable objections come from second lien stakeholders, including the ad hoc second lien group and second lien indenture trustee, who argue that the plan cannot be confirmed because it fails to provide the second lien parties with payment in full of all post-petition interest amounts, including post-petition PIC interest and various other fees. Other creditor groups have raised similar concerns but have yet to file formal objections to confirmation on those grounds. For instance, the Ad Hoc Unsecured Notes Group has expressed an intent to argue similar default rate post-petition interest claims, as well as that make-hold payments are necessary to leave their claims unimpaired. In addition, the first lien agent and an ad hoc lender group, in connection with the disclosure statement approval process, 
previously reserved rights with respect to concerns about default rate interest and intercreditor rights relative to the second liens. A number of parties have also raised more limited objections regarding contract issues and the plan's releases. The confirmation hearing is scheduled for Thursday, June 10th at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. This week in the Eagle Hospitality Trust cases, Judge Christopher Sanchi issued an opinion and order denying prepetition agent Bank of America's motion to dismiss the bankruptcy cases of three Singapore-based debtors. BFA had argued that the entities were not eligible debtors and that their cases had been filed in bad faith. At an earlier hearing on the matter, Judge Sanchi had said that a key issue in his consideration of whether Singaporean debtor Eagle Hospitality Real Estate Investment Trust was an eligible debtor is whether EH REIT's activities make it a business trust, maybe not formally, but by operation. Addressing the debtor eligibility question, which turns on whether EH REIT was a business trust, Judge Sanchi noted the split in authority as to whether the federal common law governed or the law of the jurisdiction where the trust resides, and ultimately held that the court should, in the first instance, look at the jurisdiction in which the trust is organized to make the determination. Judge Sanchi found that under Singapore law, it was undisputed that EH REIT is engaged in business and is a business trust. And as such, Judge Sanchi ultimately held that EH REIT was an eligible debtor. Judge Sanchi also found that the Singaporean debtors' cases were filed in good faith because there was, quote, an identity of interest between the Singaporean debtors and the U.S. debtors, and that they were part of a complex integrated capital structure that justified their protection. Judge Sanchi found that the identity of interest issue was dispositive on the question of whether the Singaporean debtors' cases had been filed in good faith. Top Red Stories this week included, Hertz may become latest solvent debtor make a case to litigate post-petition interest questions. GTT Communications likely to file Chapter 11 before June 30 bond coupon date. Tax liabilities eroding recovery for unsecured note holders. Mallinckrodt debtors object to Rockford-led Akhtar plaintiffs' request to litigate private antitrust claims in other courts. Judge gives Senate plaintiffs 24 hours to establish standing court jurisdiction, particularly in light of Promesa Prepa fiscal plan. Now, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Good morning, folks. Summer is here, but the ride never ends, does it? There's all kinds of fun stuff this week, starting with Monday, June 7th, summary judgment hearing in Malincrote. Tuesday, June 8th, earnings from Academy Sports and Oral Arguments in Puerto Rico. Wednesday, June 9th, earnings from GameStop and United Natural Foods. Thursday, June 10th, it's a day you've all been waiting for, none more so than my friend and colleague Sean Daly. Confirmation hearing in Hertz. And if that's not enough for you, there's also earnings from PetSmart. And Friday, a cash collateral and dip financing hearing in Brazos Electric. And so the sun sets on another week. That is all. And back to New York. And next up, Reorg Sean Daly speaks with Jeff Cohen of Lonestein Sandler. Jeff and Sean discuss Jeff's 20-year career, how he fell into restructuring, retail bankruptcies, and Jeff's representation of the Unsecured Creditors Committee in the Century 21 bankruptcy cases. Today, joining us on the Reorg podcast is Jeff Cohen, a partner at Lonestein Sandler and the chair of the firm's bankruptcy and restructuring department. Jeff, welcome. Thanks. Appreciate it. So... For those of our listeners who may not know you, could you walk us through your background? How did you get into restructuring, uh, luck, chance, choice? Yeah, so all of the above. I went to law school at St. John's University School of Law, where they published the National Law Review publication for the American Bankruptcy Institute. Um, I made it as an editor onto the ABI Law Review And I think when I was applying for law firm positions, people assumed that I liked bankruptcy because I was on the Bankruptcy Law Review, where the reality is I just accepted the most prestigious offer I got 
for law review. So um, when I interviewed at law firms for a first year associate position, I was looking for a litigation position because that's really what drives me. I like being in the courtroom. I like uh, the pressure of the podium. I like examining witnesses. And uh, my first law firm, Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett, said, we'd love to have you, but we'd love to have you as a bankruptcy associate. Um, obviously, you can't uh, question the you know high profile and credibility of Simpson Thatcher, so it was an offer I wanted to take. I figured if it didn't work out, I could always pivot to another discipline um, with Simpson Thatcher in my background. And 21 years later, I'm still doing bankruptcy, so I appreciate um, their foresight in that regard. That's great. And then how long have you been at Lone State? So after Simpson, I spent 15 years at uh, Kronish, Lieb, Wiener, and Hellman, which merged into Cooley. And I came to Lowenstein four and a half years ago. So it was four years this past January. Um, it's been great. Really loved it so far. Gotcha. And before we move on into a few cases and other industry matters, what do you enjoy doing with all that copious free time restructuring attorneys are known to have? <laughs> Well, I've had more free time over the last few months than I'd prefer, uh, but generally over the course of my career, um, I think as most of us type A personalities, we also throw ourselves pretty hard into even our casual uh, personal lives. Um, I'm a fitness fanatic. I run marathons. I run triathlons. Um, and when I'm not punishing myself physically, uh, I focus on my kids prioritizing being a dad um, and their extracurricular activities. So um, I, I also miss over the last 15 months, live sports um, mm -hmm. and live music. It's, uh, it's my passion. It's a passion I share with my children. So um, I can't wait to get back into stadiums and arenas sometime soon. Yep. What was the last live sporting event or concert you went to before COVID, if you, if you can remember? Yeah, so actually I, I took my kids uh, two weeks ago to a Met game at City Fields. That was my first one since COVID, um, which was amazing being back in the in the stadium. But before that... Um, was a St. John's basketball game at Madison Square Garden about like a week before the world shut down. I think when the world shut down, St. John's was at halftime during the Big East tournament, um, and they didn't come out for the second half. But I was not at that game, but I was at the game before that. Great. So, Jeff, turning into a, a recent case, you represented the UCC in the Century 21 department stores case, uh, which filed last year. So department stores in the name, but for our listeners outside of New York, could you explain just you know, what is Century 21? Sure. Uh, it has an extraordinary iconic meaning in the Northeast, in particular for fans of Sex and the City. Uh, but for those who don't know it, it's you know a high-end designer label off-price department store. So think you know TJ Maxx, but higher brand names and. Um, many tens of thousands of more square feet. So it's a, it's a department store by way of size. It's off price, um, making it a discount store, uh, but the labels are, are much more high-end. You know, think Gucci, Fendi, that level. Um, uh, also mixed with your you know, Adidas, Nike, Under Armour, et cetera. Gotcha, thanks. So it was a, a COVID casualty, but with a potentially interesting twist. I'd like to focus on one of the major assets of the estate. There was, uh, I don't know what you'd like to call it, but some sort of physical premises, business interruption, insurance. Uh, you know, what, what made this such a, a big asset of the estate? 
Yeah, so it, it's, for me, not so much a COVID casualty in the same way as other retailers were referred to last year. You know, I worked on other quote-unquote COVID casualties, including Model Sporting Goods, Sir Latab, and GNC, um, as well as all the others that were on the, you know, on the bankruptcy scene last year, like Neiman Marcus and Pier 1 and JCPenney. Many of those were spoken about for years. You know, they were on Chapter 11 radar watches for years. And COVID was the last piece that pushed them over the edge. Century 21 was not that entity. Uh, Century 21 was doing well, by all accounts. They were in the process of expanding. They were about to open in the American Dream Mall in New Jersey. They were opening in Florida. They were relocating other locations in the New York area to better real estate. Um, and then COVID hit, and it shut them down completely. Other retailers have filed business interruption insurance claims and have been denied. Um, Century 21, to the point of your question, was extremely unique and continues to be unique. And why is that? Well, when 9-11 occurred, Century 21's flagship location was basically right across the street from Ground Zero. They were unable to access that location for a very long time, as you can imagine. Since that day, the Gindi family, who owned Century 21, and now owns the intellectual property again as a result of the bankruptcy process, they purchased highly specific, bespoke, manuscripted insurance policies that included language that also incorporated natural disasters, acts of God, governmental orders, the types of things that shut down Century 21 last year, the Century 21 insurance policies include provisions that are not in your normal business interruption insurance policies. And for that, they paid premiums exceeding a million dollars a year for the last 20 years. So when the world shut down and they couldn't open their stores by way of governmental order, they immediately said, we've been paying for this. We're prepared for this. Um, and the insurance policies honored just shy of $5 million in claims when Century 21 was asserting claims of $175 million in claims. So it was a pretty unique asset. Uh, the ability to market those claims, or, or better yet, the ability to choose between prosecuting those claims ourselves um, or selling them to monetize them more quickly was a unique asset that was not available in other retail cases last year. Interesting. So post-petition, then the, the debtors... I guess to to your last point there, the debtors decide to try to monetize these claims. Uh, I, I think you said, correct me if this is wrong, 175 million in in counting. So that was what was of, asserted at the yeah. time, um, and subject to you know further refinement. But that was the order of magnitude. Yes. Gotcha. Um, so then in November, debtors come into court seeking approval of a sale to a party who insisted on remaining anonymous and purchasing the claim via private sale. Uh, just quoting from the pleadings, this party was, quote, not an affiliate of, insider of, a creditor of, or related in any way to the debtors. Can you give us any additional color on maybe what type of entity the mystery purchaser was? Yeah, it was a sophisticated purchaser of insurance claims and other litigation claims. Um, I think they required anonymity, uh, one, to reduce a competitive environment. And two, because they are so sophisticated and are pursuing portfolios of claims, 
right? They have other business interruption insurance claims and other litigation claims unrelated to business interruption insurance um, where they will combine those claims with this claim to seek larger recoveries from insurance companies. Um, and I think it was important to them um, as part of their more broad strategy in pursuit of litigation claims in general to um, keep that anonymous from potential insurers um, so that they can maintain leverage in their future um, litigation efforts. So I respected that. But that sale ultimately didn't go through. So what happened next in the case? So there was an interesting tension early in the case between, and I mean tension, not adverse relationship, uh, but there was a tension in the dynamic between the debtors committee and the lenders. The lenders, if the store closing sales did not go as well as they did, um, which they ended up going very well, but if they didn't go as well as they did, the lenders would have required a portion of the sale of the insurance claims in order to pay them down. So early in the case, there was pressure from the lenders to at least explore monetizing the insurance claims sooner so that they can get out in full. Um, ultimately, as I said, we didn't need those proceeds to get them out in full, but at the point when it wasn't clear, um, it was certainly within their right, it was within their collateral package to um, require that we at least run a process to monetize that asset. When it came time to decide whether to pursue a deal with the anonymous purchaser, then it was really in the hands of the committee to decide whether guaranteed dollars at a pretty meaningful number, it was north of $40 million, um, but way south of the asserted $175 million. So it was up to the committee at that point to take the bird in the hand of substantial money um, or roll the dice and litigate it ourselves for what would likely be an extended period of time. And a lot of factors went into our decision at the time, but one factor, which is very common in liquidating Chapter 11s and particularly in retail, is the estate is um, somewhat hamstrung by its lack of liquidity, right? So um, I recall years ago when I was involved in the Sharper Image bankruptcy case and we sold the intellectual property for like $500,000 and, you know, like six months later it was flipped for $50 million. Um, you know, we had to sell it for 500000 because we were running out of cash. We couldn't wait around six months to run a six-month process because we, as an estate, couldn't fund continuing efforts. So here, when we had an offer of substantial size, we had to decide whether we would litigate for years, right? The insurance companies are fighting these claims in every jurisdiction around the country. Thousands, tens of thousands of claims filed around the country in every municipality, in every state, including federal, every jurisdiction you could think of, the insurers are defending vigorously. So you'd have to assume this would take, you know, not in bankruptcy time, this would be litigation time, two to four years, maybe more. And could we fund that litigation or did we want to go out and get litigation financing to enable us to do that? Uh, ultimately, for a variety of reasons, we decided to lock in that bid with the anonymous purchaser. In doing so, it actually also factored into a more uh, broad strategy we had uh, in connection with our discussions with the Gindi family to reach a global settlement in the case, which would include not only monetizing the insurance assets, but also monetizing potential insider claims that we had been investigating. So the puzzle pieces seemed to be unrelated, uh, but the closer they got, we ultimately started to realize they fit together.
So what happened then with the with the Gindi family? Were you able to reach that sort of more global deal with them? Yeah, so so credit to the Gindi family and, and their professionals. Um, listen, I can't count how many retail cases I've done over 21 years. A lot of the times, existing management, in specifically closely held companies that are held privately, held by families, a lot of the times they tell you, we really want to just make good by the vendor community and the landlord community because we recognize we left them holding the bag. But 99 times out of 100, it's just lip service. Um, here, that's not the case. The Gindi family stepped up. They said, we've owned this company for decades and we take it personally that we left you holding the bag. You are vendors we want to do business with. You are landlords we want to do business with. And in fact, ultimately, they bought the intellectual property and plan on rebooting the company um, and would not be able to do that without repairing the relationships with the vendor and landlord community. So when we approached them about global settlement discussions, I'd say approach, I think we probably approached each other simultaneously. They were also anxious to talk to us. Uh, we were all on the same page. You know, there were... Uh, colorable claims. Our investigation started to show there were colorable claims against insiders, which is not surprising for a family-held company, right? A lot of times families treat their business accounts much like they're their own accounts, and it only becomes a problem when they're in distress. Um, when they're healthy and happy, no one cares. So here, plenty of that occurred, um, including some real estate dealings that we thought had legs by way of litigation against the insiders. Um, we shared that information with them. We expressed to them the breadth of claims we thought we could assert. Um, and very quickly, I think within a matter of weeks, we reached an arrangement with them that not only compromised and settled the insider claims, but the Gindis, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation where the Gindis have been writing premium checks for over a million dollars a year for 20 years, they believe they were taken advantage of by the insurance companies, that they paid for this, and that the insurance companies are backing out. So the Gindis really believe in the full strength of these insurance claims. And it enabled us to reach a global settlement because they wanted to settle the insider actions, but more importantly, they wanted to buy the insurance claims at the threshold we were at with the third-party anonymous purchaser so that they can get the upside, uh, which they very strongly believed in. So we struck a deal that um, paid us close to $60 million up front, which was you know, in the ballpark of $20 million higher than the original insurance bid. Um, it also gives the estate, which is now the, the, the trust for creditors, a, an interest in 10% of the proceeds of the insurance claims above a recovery of 75 million. So if the Guineas are right, um, and these claims you know, actually monetize at the level where we asserted, anywhere between 75 and 175 million, uh, unsecured creditors stand to get another payment. So it was a it was a deal that made sense for everybody involved. Um, it enabled the Gindis to restore their relationships, repair their relationships, or at least begin to, um, with their trade vendor and landlord communities, which will enable them to reboot the company more successfully, we hope. Um, it gave them the opportunity to seek redemption on these insurance policies they've been paying very high premiums for for 20 years. And it gave creditors uh, a share in the upside, which we did not really previously have with the third-party purchaser. Yeah, that's a, that's a great outcome. 
uh, seemingly for all all parties involved, everyone gets a gets a piece of the action. Yeah, I mean, creditors went from an estimated return of zero to ten cents mm-hmm. to thirty to forty cents, which I know people that don't have a lot of familiarity with retail um, Chapter 11s these days think that 30 to 40 cents still leaves 60 to 70 cents unpaid. But let me tell you how hard it is to take a case from zero to 30. Um, it's way harder to do that than it is to take it from you know 50 to 100. Uh, when there's already cash in play, it's sometimes easier to magnify um, and amplify. Uh, when you're starting at zero to 10, it's incredibly difficult to bring that to 30 to 40. So it's a really extraordinary result. And I'd be remiss to not mention the fact that some committees have um, more passive committee members, right? When their professionals update them on the status of negotiations and they you know, somewhat just defer to the judgment of the professionals, that did not occur here. We had a very active committee full of extremely experienced and savvy directors of credit, chiefs of finance from very large designer labels, landlords, the employee union. Um, And we had many very active phone calls discussing the benefits and potential downfalls of this settlement. Um, So it was really, frankly, extremely productive um, and extraordinarily welcomed by, by my team and the team from Alex Partners uh, who represented the committee um, to have such active committee members. It was a huge uh, value add in this case. That's a, yeah, that's, a, that's an absolutely amazing outcome for that case. I guess shef- shifting gears maybe into retail generally, and I, I think you said earlier you've, you've done a number of retail cases over the years. Yeah, without counting, it's got to be more than 75. Okay. So one, one thing that always comes up in, in retail, I feel like, is seasonality in business models impacting timing. Uh, you know, you now throw in the uncertainty or volatility that COVID has caused over the last year. Are you seeing any timing interplay between coming out of COVID and seasonality just inherent in business models this year for retailers? Yeah, this year is a strange one. Uh, It's not like anything I've ever seen before. And as I said, I've been doing retail for almost my whole career, probably the last 19 of my 21-year career. And if we did this interview last October, as we were entering what everybody predicted would be the worst, historically worst holiday season ever seen, Right. People were predicting if you can't go into a mall or you can only go into a mall at capacity limits, this is going to be catastrophic. And we're going to see a retail deluge in January through March after people really find out where they are post-holiday. As we know now, none of that happened. Right, Holiday season was not historically awful, but obviously not, in, not incredibly well. But we've seen no filings, virtually no filings since the beginning of the year. And that's incredibly strange. Um, Even in non-COVID years, you see a shakeout of retail players that didn't do well in the holiday season, that once they have their performance results, they sit down with their boards of directors and they sit down with their lenders 
and there's a decision to liquidate. Um, you do that because most stores are liquidating post-holidays. A lot of consumers look for post-holiday discount opportunities. So it's a very strong two-month period, really, January and February, to liquidate remaining inventory. You also have to get rid of your winter inventory as you approach the spring months. We saw none of that. And why is that? Well, a lot of lenders, I believe, were faced with the following decision. They believed they had a lot of retail customers that when the world gets back to normal, previously were strong performers and will return to being strong performers. So those lenders were deciding, do we liquidate now at a time when many consumers are still hesitant to go back to the stores, which means our liquidations will likely go awful, or do we try to predict when consumers will return to stores and when the world will return to normal? And can we just bridge that gap? Sitting there in January, do we think it's going to happen in May or June? So do we get a bump from Mother's Day and Father's Day sales? Do we think it's going to happen in July and August, which will be just in time for back to school? And I think most lenders combined with the debtors and their boards of directors decided really at worst based on vaccination prediction timelines, et cetera, um, based on the, the current pace at the time of store reopenings and capacity restrictions being lifted, I think most lenders and debtors believed at the latest the world would be back to normal from a retail perspective by the summer. So in doing so, lenders calculated, okay, how much will it cost to cover the operating losses to the extent there are any, between now and when stores get back to normal? And is it worth funding that to get back to having profitable, strong performers in their portfolio? And thinking back to post-Lehman, when we saw a year to two years of an extraordinary number of retail filings, Lenders were then faced with, well, if I file another liquidation, consumers bought everything they need already, so they're not going to buy more. And the whole concept of amend and extend popped up because they figured, well, let's just wait it out. Liquidating again doesn't help me because no one's buying anything anymore. Similar here for obviously different reasons. So I think we got a new version of amend and extend. Lenders entered into forbearance agreements with their retail partners, um, at least through the back-to-school season. I think we might see lenders and debtors revisiting where they stand after back to school, so late September, early October, and deciding whether to continue to roll the dice through a holiday season. Um, I predict that many will continue to roll the dice for the holiday season, right, because you do most of your inventory purchasing uh, throughout the year. And you're purchasing not just for back to school, you're purchasing for back to school and holidays. The inventory will be there. Many lenders will decide, well, do I want to liquidate during the holiday season, which is the single strongest time of the year to liquidate because the consumers are in your stores anyway. Um, and the theory is maybe they'll buy from you at a discount price instead of buying from someone else at full retail. So some will decide, I think, to liquidate then. But I believe the vast majority will and are, will then and may have already decided to roll the dice through the remainder of the year to see if they can recover their losses 
through a combination of back to school and the holiday. So we may be sitting here again next January waiting to see if there's a retail fallout that we expected to see this past January. Interesting. Thanks. Yeah, that's quite a, quite a number of decision points coming up uh, for lenders and, and debtors over the course of the year. So, and, li- and likewise to the trade, sorry to interrupt, and likewise to the trade community, right? While this is in sort of Chapter 11 hover mode, um, it's not lost on their trade partners that certain companies are in distress, right? Um, you're not healthy just because you received stimulus funds or a reprieve from your lenders. If you had operational challenges, you still likely have operational challenges. Um, if you had a faulty business model, you likely still have a faulty business model, and that's not lost on your trade partners. So um, trade partners and landlords are deciding, do I extend credit? Do I modify my lease? Do I provide rent concessions? So it's happening on all ends. Um, obviously, it's just the debtors and lenders are in the pole position on those decisions. Thanks for filling that in. Yeah, perhaps debtors and lenders is a, a bit too, too reductive. Uh, so, Jeff, maybe final topic of, of conversation here, moving over to the, the restructuring world and practice of law. You're now uh, practice group chair. What is what is that transition uh, from, you know, being being a partner to stepping up to the the practice group chair been like? Yeah, I mean, extremely interesting. It's not something you can really train for, um, nor is it something you can put on your desired career path. Twenty years ago, you can't say in twenty years I want to take over for one of the deans of the bankruptcy bar. Um, it's just something that happens, right? You keep your head down and you do your job and you do it well. And ultimately, either you make partner or you make counsel, right? You, you're, you advance in your career. And this is just one of those next steps that um, my partners thought I'd be a good choice for. Um, taking over for Ken Rosen, who um, is, in my mind, one of the deans of the bankruptcy bar, uh, is, is no easy challenge. He set that bar very high, but he also set me up for success, right? He has had his team on the Lowenstein platform for 20 plus years. And before that, they were together at a boutique firm. So the core of this group at the partner level had been together for over 30 years. Um, You can't replicate that, right? So there's a bond and there's a teamwork mentality that um, is a credit to Ken and to the team. So I get to take over, you know, it's like, you know, you're a major league baseball and you get voted to manage the all-star team. Well, you, you didn't create those all-star players. You were just given the team. So um, I've been given an all-star team to try to take them to the next level. Um, I'm excited about it. I see a lot of opportunity here. The Lowenstein platform um, is extremely impressive in that regard and I think provides opportunity that perhaps we haven't um, taken advantage of to uh, its fullest extent in the past. So um, since I have arrived four and a half years ago, I've tried to start diversifying what we're known for um, to more evenly balance our practice, to not be so creditor committee heavy. We have incredible skill sets in the debtor um, arena and in asset purchasing. Um, When you combine, in particular, the debtor side with our incredibly robust private equity practice and investment management practice, 
Um, I see a lot of opportunity for us to become a very strong player in the middle market debtor practice. Um, so, you know, we'll see where that goes. Um, but uh, I'm starting off with an enormous advantage uh, taking over for a team that's already been in place and already of the highest quality um, and caliber attorneys. Going, going back to one comment you, you made a minute or so ago about, you know, this is something you, you put your head down, you do good work, sort of focus on the process, and then, and then things just happen. What's one thing about the practice of law or restructuring specifically you wish you'd known earlier in your own career? When I was a junior associate at Simpson, um, I didn't realize how often people moved around in our industry. Um, that was eye-opening to me. I got my first job when I was 14. I didn't quit that job until I went to college, where I got a new job and didn't quit that job until I graduated college. So, you know, for me, loyalty and allegiance is everything. I don't, I don't think we could end on a, on a better note than that. So we'll, we'll leave it there. Jeff, thanks for making the time to chat today. Uh, for your insights, Century 21, really interesting. Uh, bunch of bunch of other highlights there along the way. Um, I guess we'll we'll keep an eye out and see what what Lonestein gets up to next under your watch. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com media page as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend, and see you next Sunday.